Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Welcome to a new week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have all of you uh, with us here today. It's the beginning, obviously, of a very consequential week in American politics. We've got the Iowa caucuses tonight. You already certainly know that. You probably also know the impeachment trial resumes uh, later this morning. They're actually going to start, I think, at 11 o'clock this morning when uh, uh, there will be opportunities to debate the articles of impeachment And uh, then tomorrow night, we've got the State of the Union address. Wednesday, the Senate will vote on whether uh, to convict or or quit President Trump. So big week in politics for all of us. So let's get going as soon as we can. Uh, Let me introduce everybody on the panel. Let me start with the people who are right here in the studio with me. Tamar Hellerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joins us. Hi, Tamar. Good to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me. We are going to find time a little later in the show to talk about a really terrific piece you filed for the Sunday Atlanta Journal-Constitution that has to do with nuclear weapons, a new class that may have uh, uh, launched out of St. Mary's, right? The submarine base there. Yeah, out of Kings Bay, a really fascinating story. We'll get to that a little later in the show. Karen Owen is here with us as as well. Karen, political science professor at uh, 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 Western Georgia University, West Georgia University, uh, but also a former um, Capitol Hill uh, uh, worker. You worked for Congressman Nathan Deal. That was a while ago. Yes, it's been 15 years wow. since I was a staffer. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, we're glad you're back with us today and that you were willing to fight traffic. It's my pleasure. To get here. Um, Jim Galloway joins us from the far reaches of Western Cobb County. He was up there working on the jolt for the AJC. Jim, of course, files on Wednesdays and Sundays. His column appears in the paper on those days, and he does oversee the pol- Political Insider blog at AJC.com. How are you this morning, Jim? We, were on, you got, we got you on phone. We couldn't quite make our technology work. Yeah, I was, I was hoping we could get WGALL, the GPP affiliate in Kennesaw, up and running, but not, not yet. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so Jim is here with us. And uh, in Washington at the NPR studios, uh, Kyle Hayes, who uh, uh, oversees Peach Pod, which is a terrific podcast that features news and stories about uh, Georgia politics. Kyle, we're glad to have you with us. I always like to remind people, you are from Georgia. You know Georgia politics inside and out. You just happen to be working in Washington these days, but continue Peach Pod from up there. How are you? Hey, Bill, I'm here. Good morning. (laughs) Boy, the technical issues that we're facing this morning. Kyle, thank you. I've already introduced you. I did not, before we went on the air, check to see what your latest podcast is. So why don't you give us a quick uh, summary? Uh, Well, we looked back at uh, Doug Collins' decision to enter the Senate race and what that means for that Republican primary and all that jostling back and forth over Uh, legislation changing the primary schedule that doesn't seem like it's going to happen now. Yeah, no, it's pretty well buried. We spent a lot of time on the show talking about that last week. Well, thank you for being with us. People can uh, go to wherever they get their podcasts and listen to uh, Peach Pod from there. So um, I was the big, big national story. But Jim Galloway, there's a pretty big story that unfolded here in Georgia over the last few days. And that's we have finally seen fundraising totals 
from um, all, the end of 2019, the last quarter of 2019, and gotten also to take a look at how much cash each candidate has on hand. I think, and I, I think you'll agree with me, that number one headline is the Republican candidates for U.S. Senate, um, and that being uh, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue. We haven't heard from uh, Doug Collins yet because he doesn't have to report yet, but Leffler and Perdue have far outraised, they have far greater reservoirs of money on hand than any of the Democrats in the, in the race right now. Would you agree with me that's oh, the big headline? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Look, uh, I mean, Purdue brought in, I think, two million in the last quarter in this 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 last quarter and has maybe seven point eight million cash on hand. Yep. Uh, Leffler just simply uh, wrote a check to herself for five million. And I think she raised uh, oh, maybe a couple a few hundred thousand dollars more besides besides that. Uh, what's what's you know, and 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 yes, you've you've seen you've seen uh uh, uh, Amico and uh, Sarah Riggs Amico and and Teresa Tomlinson kind of struggle with fundraising. Ossoff has got them both beat with, uh, I think he raised a million, a million. or so yep. in this in this last quarter, uh, and and it's it, a lot of this goes to the incumbency. You know, I mean, uh, especially with with, with Purdue, uh, Ossoff, of course, has has a has a history of of raising. Uh, uh, he's got a, a network that he established in the 2017 congressional race. Right. I thought I, I will tell you what I thought the most interesting number that I saw was Lucy McBath uh, raising something like three times as much as Karen Handel did. Yeah, yeah. I went. And we'll talk about that in a, in a couple minutes because what's interesting that's the other headline. Uh, and we'll get to that part of it. And that is that while the Republicans have uh, done much better than uh, Democrats in the Senate race, on the other hand, in those two key congressional races in metro Atlanta, it is the Democrats who have done well. Jim just pointed out tomorrow that uh, Lucy McBath has raised a couple million dollars uh, over in the 7th District. Carolyn Bordeaux hasn't raised anywhere near that much I think about half a million or so. Nevertheless, she's pacing the field in fundraising. Exactly. And, and Bordeaux did a, a great job of this last last year as well. And Lucy McBath, both of them. Um, but, but for Bordeaux, that's particularly good considering how sprawling that field is in the 7th District up in Gwinnett and Forsyth County. But, you know, Lucy McBath right now realizes she's on the list of some of the most imperiled members of the House, or at least kind of these frontline districts that, are, that Republicans are very much challenging this year. So I think this group of her and about 30 other vulnerable freshmen are really kind of battening down and, and really emphasizing fundraising. And you're seeing that to try and scare off folks and show how mighty she is. Um, Kyle, let's go back to the Senate race for a minute. And, and Karen, I'd love to get your take on this as well. Um, it, I, I, ever since Teresa Tomlinson became the first Democrat to jump into the uh, Senate seat number one, the David Perdue seat, We've spent an awful lot of time tracking her fundraising, talked about the fact that it, it hasn't been robu- as robust as I think she would like uh, to have, certainly. Uh, it also doesn't it, – it makes us wonder about how deep her support is. Um, and once again, this time she raised about 500000 or she has about $500,000 at the end of 2019 and has about $320,000 cash in hand compared to – David produced more than seven million, but but Kyle, I wonder if it, it by May, by end of May, one of these Democrats is going to be the candidate, and so to some extent, Amico is in the same boat, you know, trying hard to raise more money. I wonder if maybe 
we're missing something here. By the time one of these people becomes the actual general election candidate, their fundraising life will change dramatically, right? Right. I mean, you think it would change dramatically. I think this haul maybe is disappointing for Teresa Tomlinson in particular because she has an argument that she can make that she's a prominent Democrat from outside the metro Atlanta area. Um, but you, I think you, would, if you were her, you would want to see higher totals to sort of boost her viability in this race. But the question for me is you're going to have these two competitive Senate races. Uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock is the favored – the candidate favored by the party in that race. If you're National Democrats looking to invest in one of these races, do you go with Warnock, who's going to be taking on a political newcomer in Kelly Leffler, or Collins emerging from that contested primary, or any one of these Democrats in the Purdue race that has struggled to fundraise compared to the halls that, that Purdue has been able to bring in? Yeah, and, and dovetailing off of that, if you're a Democratic donor, there are so many different races that you could, you know, you, you might have a finite amount of resources. And if you, you can't afford to invest in all of them, you know, you've got a presidential race, you've got two Senate races, you've got all these competitive House races. Where are you going to put your money? And so you're struggling to really get attention in that, that giant field. Well, I think in the, you know, I was thinking about the Purdue and when Tom Wilson entered, she entered first. But then there was a lot of donors amongst the Democrats wondering if that field was going to expand. Right. So they were waiting to see if other big Democratic players were going to jump in. So they probably held back some of that money to see if an Abrams was going to jump in and now Ossoff has. But one thing that we do know is women struggle raising money compared to men. They will get fundraising, but they will get smaller donations than the men will up front. So I think that we see this with Tomlinson. And Amika Riggs, they're, you know, they're having a, a tough time bringing in that cash right now. Um, but I think once that nominee is picked in May, there will be an opportunity for more well, money that, to come. Yeah. And, uh, you know, interesting about the Ossoff piece, too, is he did raise a million in that last quarter. But if we look back at that 2017 congressional race, he was raising much more money quickly. Right. That was a short time frame, of course. But you saw an overwhelming support coming from out of state for him. But, and I'm wondering if that's going to turn up and come back this time if he I, gets the nomination. Yeah, I apologize for inter stepping on your last thought there. Jim, uh, jump in on this. Of course, the last time uh, Karen is referring to was that very uh, highly competitive special election that the whole country was watching. Right, right. Uh, a couple things. Number one, uh, I would note that 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 Ossoff and Amico and Tomlinson are they've got some pretty high burn rates. They are they are going through their money as 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 fast as they can collect it, and that's so that's something to watch for. Again, it's it's something that a, an incumbent generally doesn't have to worry about because right. he can do so much stuff through his. his uh, through his or her official channels. Uh, the other thing, I, but uh, on, on the other side of that, I, w I would say that you, because you have two Senate races here, you do have, it, it wouldn't surprise me if you see some some groups, especially the outside groups, maybe maybe uh, uh, the, the Senate operation, uh, kind of uh, uh, do a uh, go for a twofer yeah. uh, advertising campaign. Yeah, yeah. That I, I wondered if that same thing might uh, start unfolding on the Democratic side of things. Kyle. Um, Sarah Riggs Amico, I haven't given her total. She raised like 140000 in the last quarter of 2019. She wrote a check to her campaign herself for 365000 Uh She has maybe half a million dollars in her war chest. But, but, Kyle, I thought Galloway made a really important point. I was a little surprised by the burn rate, by how much cash the Democrats have been raising uh, to try to win this nomination. And, um, you know, they've got, they've got to be – 
be certain they can that their fundraising can keep up with their ambitions to spend that money. Or they have to be certain that they will be able to pick up the fundraising once you get past the primary stage. Yeah. The interesting thing to me is, I, maybe others have seen it, I haven't seen any of the candidates on the Democratic side in the Purdue race go negative against each other in a really significant way. So do, does somebody like Sarah Riggs Amico have to spend a lot of money to do that? And if so, you know, how much, how many resources is she going to have in the final days of the primary campaign? Yeah, I mean, that's right. We, you know, I'm glad you said primary campaign, because we always have to remember on the Senate side, uh, Tamar, that we are talking about two very different races. The, the uh, Tomlinson, Amico, Ossoff, Purdue race will be a primary race in, I mean, we'll watch that unfold in late May. So these candidates are on a very different timetable than a Kelly Leffler, than a Raphael Warnock, uh, than a Doug Collins, who don't have to, uh, they're not going to be on a ballot until November. And not only in the Purdue race do they have the, the primary in late May, but they also have to prepare for the possibility of a runoff, of a runoff. in July if yeah. no one gets 50% of the vote, which is entirely possible. And that's when we saw in the congressional races in 2018 with, with Carolyn Bordeaux, especially in that 7th district where things really started to turn negative once people realized what was at stake and um, you know how close they were to getting on the ballot in November. And, and I expect to see a change probably a little closer to then. So let's talk for a minute about that other Senate race. Um, Karen, Kelly Leffler, as we said at the top of the show, she's already written a check for $5 million to her campaign. She says she'll put in at least 20. She said that from the first day the governor announced that she was going to be a candidate. Um, is, is there – it's great to have those resources. How much will Democrats be able to use that against her? Or is that sort of self-funding just not the issue it may have been at one point? We've got – Michael Bloomberg, got Tom Steyer. We've got multimillionaires and billionaires putting a lot of money in their own campaigns. Has the that equation changed for voters, do you think? I think it will in this upcoming year because we will see what pans out after Super Tuesday and if Bloomberg is still in. So the Democrats won't be able to hound that message on her as much if they're looking at a nominee who is self-funding himself. So I think they'll have to see how their own primaries work out. Um, before they kind of go after her. I would say interesting, though, she has between now and the summer and the fall to start meeting with groups, getting some people to back her, and she will have, quote unquote, that incumbent status that she can run with and say, I've got this record coming forward. I think it will be hard against Doug Collins, who's also got, you know, groups and support from outside that she'll have to combat those and, and build resources. But, you know, she's going to make her investment. Yeah. She wants that seat. Yeah. So. Jim? Well, I would, number one, I would, I would say that, uh, that if, 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 if money and, and, and uh, free-spending billionaires are kind of the, the, the object, yeah. the one person who can use that is Doug Collins. He is. I mean, he he is, according to to, to, to roll call, one of the poorer members yeah. of, of Congress. Yeah, that's and, really interesting. And Leffler is now, if not the richest, one of the richest. Yeah, yeah, that's a fascinating question as to whether Doug Collins is able to make use of that. So let me throw out another one, Kyle. I, Matt Lieberman, who I haven't mentioned yet, who's in Senate race number two, raised. Uh, I think this figure is since he got into the race. If one of his people is listening to the show, please correct us, you know, tweet us, email me, whatever. He, but he's, he's got close to a million dollars. 
his uh, campaign says they've got about close to 400,000, 370 cash on hand. So, Kyle, here's what I think is interesting about that. I think there are a lot of people who sort of have downplayed Lieberman's uh, strength as a candidate, given this is his first time out. Certainly his father is one of the best-known American political leaders, uh, Joe Lieberman. But the fact that his fundraising seems to be right up there on par with uh, Teresa Tomlinson and a John, almost John Ossoff suggests we, we ought to be a little more careful in dismissing his potential. Well, I certainly think it puts uh, some weight behind when he says he will stay in the race regardless if the Democratic Party backs Reverend Warnock, um, which they appear to be doing with the Abrams endorsement um, that he got right after he launched. Lieberman has the resources to stay in, and I think he's going to expend those resources to be a competitor all the way through November. Um, and then and once you get into that sort of four-way race in the jungle primary scenario, if everybody is still in it and still fully competing for that seat, um, it, it gets really difficult to game out how competitive Lieberman could be, but he could be there. All right. Uh, before we move on beyond the fundraising, we've already mentioned it. Tomorrow, you specifically talked about it. When we look at the million dollars that Lucy McBath took in in this fourth uh, quarter of 2019, the fact that she has $2 million to spend uh, in the upcoming uh, cycle, and the Karen Handel raised only about 300000 uh, in that same period and has less than a million on hand. We've always known that Karen Handel's strength has not been as a fundraiser throughout her political career. I mean, she's won office, many of the offices she's sought, but she's never been thought of as an aggressive, uh, outstanding fundraiser. Should we read much into the fact that she's uh, struggling against Lucy McBath in fundraising? Not yet, because now the field has cleared on the Republican side. We've seen all of her Republican opponents. You know, we saw Marjorie Taylor Greene decide to run in the 14th district in northwest Georgia. We saw... um, You know, we saw some others kind of step away from from the field. So right now, neither Handel or McBath have to really do much until closer to the general election. And I think both of them sort of know that the parties in Washington, both the uh, the NRCC and the DCCC, they're probably going to be coming in and helping in both the 6th and the 7th district. So we expect them to be kind of quiet for a little bit, Um, you know, wait, quietly raise money and then maybe see them spend it closer to the fall. You know, it's interesting, uh, Karen, the other person who could be of enormous help to Lucy McBath, and we really already saw it in one of his in the Super Bowl ad, Michael Bloomberg will continue his campaign. One of the major themes of his campaign will continue to be a crackdown on gun violence. He's already given a great deal of money to Lucy McBath in that respect. But there are ways in which, even if he never mentions McBath, when he starts running TV spots in Georgia about gun measure, safety measures, it accrues to Lucy McBath's benefit as well. Yes, it will help her. And I think she will be a very smart politician to gravitate towards that messaging and to continue to use it. You know, one thing about um, the Republican side and with Karen Handel, if we look back again to that 2017 special election where she did win, at the very beginning, she only raised about $635,000 and to compete against Ossoff, who had millions at the front end. And she did she was able to bring out support for her. I think you're right, Tamar, that she 
both women will be waiting as closer and closer to the election. And then the House committees know for certain that they have other races where they've got primaries that they've got to focus the money on first to ensure that their partisans are in the actual general. So if we talk, Kyle, about the fact that um, Karen Handel's never been known for her fundraising prowess. On the other hand, Carolyn Bordeaux has show, demonstrated in her couple of races for that 7th district seat that she's really terrific at fundraising. So she paces the field, including the Republicans, I, I, I think. I'm, am I right, Jim? She raised more money than, than uh, so. say, yeah. Renee Unterman on the Republican side, who's kind of the best known, I think it's fair to say, the Republicans. But So, uh, uh, Kyle, um, Bordeaux continues this f- fast pace of fundraising, but there are any. But now we seem to see Democratic leaders moving away from her and going in another direction in who they're endorsing for that seat. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it raises the possibility that this again will be a very competitive Democratic primary as the date comes in May, um, because it was interesting. Not only did Bordeaux lead the field in fundraising, um, some of her endorsers have have transferred over to Zara Karinchak's campaign, but even Nabila Islam. Uh, who's probably the most progressive candidate in the race, she actually outraised Renee Unterman in the last quarter. Um, So you could see a dynamic there of a really competitive race down to the end. But Bordeaux definitely, I think at this point, has the finances to to lead in that regard. All right. Um, Why don't we do this? Why don't we take our first break of the show? Um, We'll have plenty of time to talk about uh, those, those races in Georgia, including how they're doing with their fundraising in the weeks and months ahead. But what we don't have a lot more time to talk about is the Iowa caucuses, which start tonight across the state of Iowa. So we want to give some time to that subject. We'll do it after we take this break. So I woke up this morning thinking Iowa caucuses tonight kind of missing being in Des Moines, where a lot of activity is going on. But people, of course, are spread out across the state today. But the first thing I thought about this morning was one of the great Iowans, Meredith Wilson. He came from Mason City, Iowa. Uh, He had an illustrious career as a composer, uh, as a lyric writer. And he wrote one of the most celebrated Broadway musicals of all time, The Music Man. And I thought, there's a song from The Music Man that fits in beautifully with what we're doing today. It's as the salesman, like a candidate, Harold Hill makes his way into a city in Iowa. He's greeted by the people of the state. I'm a stranger in your town. What do you folks do around here for excitement? Mind our business. <laughs> you are in Iowa. Iowa. Well, at least now I know how to pronounce it. I always thought you folks preferred Iowa. We do. Well, he just said Iowa. We say it now and then, but we don't like anybody else to. <laughs> we are from, from Iowa. I know. Well, you folks certainly do know how to make a body feel at home. Ah. <laughs> uh, there's nothing halfway about the Iowa way to treat you when we treat you. Jim Galloway, I, the candidates certainly know what it's like to face an audience of folks in Iowa. They're a tough crowd to please. You, you know, it kind of makes me wish Robert Preston was in the, yeah. in, in the field right now. I'd vote good, for him. Good name check on that one. Robert Preston indeed was the star of the movie version as well as the Broadway production. All right. Uh, that was fun. But uh, Jim Galloway, if people are complaining about the fact 
that Iowa goes first, that it's cold up there right now for all the candidates, the campaigns, the journalists. There is no one that they can blame for this more than our very own Jimmy Carter. Why is that? That's right. Yeah, he's the, he's the one He's the one that focused on this. What? It's been, oh, my goodness. 76? Oh, wow. He and the peanut brigade just kind of went up there and lived in Iowa for almost the better part of a year. Yeah, Kyle, uh, we remember that Iowa, I mean, Iowa has voted at caucuses for, I think, more than 100 years, but nobody paid a great deal of attention to them until that 76 election Hamilton Jordan wrote what be his who, of course, worked for Carter, uh, wrote that brilliant political memo, which told uh, Jimmy Carter how he as a relatively unknown governor of Georgia could come out of obscurity and actually win the Democratic nomination. And it all began with putting extra emphasis on Iowa. Yep. Yeah, and one of my favorite parts of that is actually him struggling in the initial parts of that race for people to really know who he was. And so he uh, decided to go on a cooking show yeah. and talk about how he liked to fry fish. Yeah. And it really wasn't a part of the campaign, but it was an effective strategy in, in raising his name ID. <laughs> and and it, it, Tamar, ever since then, uh, candidates have realized that they've got to start in Iowa, despite all the complaints that we hear all the time. And they're, and they're legitimate complaints. I don't want to talk about them in just a minute. But nevertheless, a tip of the hat to Jimmy Carter. He won the presidency because he got that uh, from the very beginning. And he was really great at, at two things that really sort of changed the game going forward. First of all, he was a great retail politician. He was great going door to door, you know, personalized notes to people that he met that either he or people on his campaign would, would write. But he also realized the importance of getting the media on your side early and creating the narrative, even if there, there wasn't necessarily momentum, this idea all of a sudden everybody's writing about you, about you and it feels like there's momentum. And once somebody like the New York Times starts writing about you, then everyone else comes and follows. And his team understood that very well. Yeah, you know, that's really the, the best thing about this, isn't it, Karen? Here's, you know, Iowa didn't matter all that much in 1975. But in 1976, the Carter people decided they would tell the country that it does matter. And as, as Tamar points out, the media went right along with them. Yes. And that was interesting <laughs> that you had this unknown from Georgia who had been a governor, right, go and make Iowa part of the piece to have the media follow along and then to set new expectations in this state as to what presidential politics would be about, how you would go into there and you would do more retail politics. You would really get to know the voters and talk to the voters and then the media would follow along and talk about who might be the front runner, who could then go on to other states and be successful. And that sent him right to New Hampshire, Jim, and from New Hampshire on, it was his to lose. Yeah, it was. And, 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 and look, you've really got to hand it to Hamilton Jordan. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he is the fellow who drew up the game plan. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's just uh, it's it's remarkable that it that 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 pathway has has lingered so long afterwards. Yeah. I think. If you're really a political junkie and I know a lot of you out there uh, listening who listen to this show are I you should go on Google and Google the Hamilton Jordan master campaign memo that uh, that Jimmy Carter followed to win the White House. It's, I think, 40 pages, and it's a historic document. I mean, it's, it's Tamar, one of the best-known uh, campaign documents that we've had in, in, 
in uh, recent political history, American political history. And it's amazing kind of how little has changed yeah. since then, all these made-for-TV <laughs> moments. And, and this idea that media perception becomes reality at some point is so wild. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Can I interrupt sure, here? One, one thought. One, one thought is just remember that Jimmy Carter, his message was, I will never lie to you. Oh, that's right. That's exactly right. Thank you for, for remembering that, Jim. All right. So Jim Galloway, I saw the, uh, the jolt had come out just before the show went on the air. And you and I both noticed something that I thought was wonderful. The Washington Post over the weekend ran an op-ed by a professor at Fordham University. Her name is Christina Greer. She's an associate professor of political science. Uh, and she uh, was part of a series of op-eds that the uh, Post did on how to improve the presidential nominating process. And we know there are a lot of people who think Iowa and New Hampshire are not representative, certainly on the Democratic side of the, the voting universe for Democrats. And, and Jim, I'll, I'll ask you to comment on it, but let me read just a couple lines. The lead of her piece says, no disrespect to Iowa, but new realities of American life mean that the Hawkeye state should not be the first state to hold an electoral contest for the Democratic Party's nomination. Instead, the state of Georgia should receive the honor. And she goes on to say um, she talks about Stacey Abrams changing the landscape in Georgia in terms of the ability of uh, minorities to be attracted to really get out and vote. For Democrats, she said, voters of color are the future of the Democratic Party. Between 2002 and 2018, voters of color in Georgia increased their share of the electorate from less than 25 percent to more than 40 percent of the overall uh, electorate. So there's the argument, Jim. Uh, Christina Greer says, let's do it here first. Well, yeah, and, and, and look, Iowa is 90 percent white. It's uh, primarily rural. I think the population is, is a little bit over 3 million. Georgia is, is creeping up on 11 million right now. Uh, I think that, that just the, but the, 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 democra- the, the, the demography, I think, is, 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 the, uh, is the big point here. Uh, it, it's such a uh, – that and New Hampshire, let's not, let's not leave out New Hampshire. I mean, it's just they're, uh, they don't look like what the U.S. has become. And 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 Greer's argument is that Georgia does. Uh, yeah, there, there's a Times piece, the New York Times piece, uh, out, out this morning uh, that that says uh, Michigan and, and Florida could are are are, uh, are just as diverse and could equally equally serve as as, as something like that. The, obviously, the question is is what do you lose? And you what you do lose is that retail politics, yeah. uh, the the door to door knocking. Georgia is a huge, huge state. Yeah, yeah. That people find out very quickly. Karen, the uh, the Sanders people are saying this morning uh, that he's so energized, their people are so energized that they, that people from their campaign have knocked on more than 500,000 doors leading up to tonight's caucuses. That's what Jim's talking about, and that's what it means to do, to do Iowa right. You've got to have a big ground game. Yes, and you also have to recognize, too, that in Iowa, those voters are registered Democrats and registered Republicans. And here in Georgia, we haven't registered by party. So you know those voters you need to target. And if I looked correctly, there's about 630, 40,000 registered Democrats in Iowa right now. So if Sanders is knocking on a half a million doors, he's almost touching every Democrat registered voter there in Iowa. Here in Georgia, how would you know that you for certain are hitting Democrats unless you're looking at their voter registration history, 
But here in Georgia, we know, too, in primaries, you can switch over and vote in the opposite party. So if we look back at the 2016 presidential primary here in Georgia, only about 765,000 people voted in the Democratic primary for president. And that was a very popular tie between Sanders and Clinton. The Republican side, you had over half a million more voters. And so will those voters in a contentious race want to have more say and the other party's nominee. Yeah. Tamar, uh, we pay a lot of attention to Iowa. We should. But um, if you look, we look, when we look back on the history of the voting in the state, it's a pretty lousy predictor of who's going to win the White House. And it's, it's decent for certain things. So, so right. Iowa has proven to be relatively predictive when it comes to the Democratic nominee. The nominee, right. It doesn't necessarily mean that those people go on to win. In fact, the only people who have won the Iowa caucuses who have gone on to win the White House, and I'm not talking about incumbents, presidents here, right. but but Barack Obama and Jimmy Carter. That was it. And the That's rest it. of them. <laughs> Especially Republicans, Iowa has proven to be not so predictive. And and we remember back uh, back in 2016, it was Ted Cruz who narrowly beat out uh, Donald Trump. Yes. Although, if you go back to that election, uh, that tw- or that, that yeah, the caucuses in 2016, Trump did come away from there, Kyle, claiming victory because he was predicted by most people to finish fourth in the Iowa caucuses. The fact that he came fairly close to uh, Ted Cruz in second place was something they decided to celebrate on the Trump campaign. Yeah, and that's what's going to be really interesting about tonight's results as well. They have a new method for reporting the results. They're going to report the delegate counts as they historically have, but they're also going to report the raw vote totals for both the first ballot and the final ballot of the voting that goes on within these caucuses. And so there's an opportunity here, even if you don't win, to pick the numbers that are most favorable to your campaign and spin them as momentum or spin them as the ability to win voters that are necessary to win in the general. Um, so it's it, to me, it seems likely you might get a muddled message it's, out of tonight. That's Karen, I'm so glad we have a political science professor on today because I've been trying to completely understand how they're what the vote the vote totals that are going to report tonight, as Kyle said, brand new way of doing it. So there are two different kinds of votes that we're going to hear from tonight, right? We're going to hear essentially, well, let's remind people of how the caucus works. Everybody, you come into your school gym. Yes. There are 50 of you. Yes. What and happens? then they will start by, con- you know, saying the candidate's name, and then the members will actually move to that area where that supporter's name Each is. Each candidate has Each... a corner or section of the room. Yes. And okay. then the, the voters will go to that area and support that particular one. And so if you have Sanders people there, they will go to one section of that room to support him. And then you're actually no secret ballot. So you're telling all your neighbors who you're supporting. And then, it you know, once that's done and then you see, then they'll do second voting. You for... have to have 15 percent. 15% of the people who are in your school gym have got to go to your corner, candidate X's corner, uh, to be able to be viable and to keep those people there. And then there's that second round. And the people who are not viable, who candidate, whose candidates have not gotten 50%, candidate Y, they get to hear pitches from their neighbors about why they should join candidate X or candidate Z Right. And that's why the retail politicking is so important there, because even if you're not going to get folks on that first ballot, maybe you can get them on the second ballot. Yeah. Yeah. So the reason Kyle already said it, but but Jim, the reason tonight's results may feel a little muddled is that for the first time ever, 
Iowa's going to report not the number, not the winner on the basis just of who got the delegates, the state, uh, the county delegates, but they're going to give us that first raw number, how many people went to the corner of candidate X in every precinct across Iowa. So we potentially have two different tallies that we're going to be able to look at tonight. Right, and this this is I'm trying to remember what was the uh, uh, the uh, the Rick Santorum uh, Iowa race was that 2012? Santorum was uh, good question. I don't have it, it right it in was, front of me. I mean, I mean, he he was he was declared the winner of the Republican caucus. Yes. in that contest two days afterwards. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's exactly and, right. And, and 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 so these muddled finishes finishes aren't. Uh, uh, aren't unique. Uh, I tell you what, one thing that I would dearly love to know um, at the end of this night is how many Donald Trump voters join into the uh, switch their party affiliations and join the join the Republican caucus. Well, here's I mean, mean the Democratic Democratic caucus. caucus. Um, Well, that would be interesting. It's interesting. But again, this is not secret ballot. So this is telling your neighbors. No, I know exactly. So exactly why why it's interesting. So are you your your neighbors? I was just thinking, are you brave and courageous enough to tell your neighbors you're no longer a Trump supporter and you're ready to be behind someone in the Democratic Party? And if so, are you willing to say I'm ready for a moderate? So I'm okay with maybe an Amy Klobuchar or a Pete Buttigieg, but I'm not ready to go to Sanders. Yeah, that's it's it's uh, uh, Kyle. One of the questions is is one that Karen just raised. How many people want to risk uh, telling their neighbors, I'm not so sure I'm convinced by Trump anymore. It's it's uh, and who knows, maybe you'll get tweeted at by the president. <laughs> Joe Roberts went and he caucused against me and he <laughs> goes after him. I mean, yeah, I would I mean, think that's... if you're if you're in the urban areas <laughs> of Iowa, the few that there are, I mean, you may be willing. Right. But if you're still in that western part of Iowa on the agriculture part, yeah. are you willing to say Yes, maybe these Trump tariffs have not been helpful to me, and I'm ready to move. Well, Kyle, we really don't expect uh, President Trump's going to have a whole lot of trouble winning the uh, delegates of Iowa, do we? Not in the end. I mean, it's interesting. Pete Buttigieg's campaign is actually making a deliberate play at Republican voters to show his strength among swing voters. But, yeah, I don't think Iowa's on the board for Democrats once we get to the general election in November. Um, well, that's going to be something that we'll watch very closely. All right, let, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, I do want to talk for a few more minutes about we've, we've sort of looked a bit at the history of Iowa. Uh, let's talk very specifically about where things seem to stand with uh, Democratic candidates going into the caucuses tonight. And we'll do that after these messages. We're back on Political Rewind. Tamar Hallerman, Karen Owen in the studio. Uh, Kyle Hayes, Peach Pod, is joining us from NPR in Washington. Jim Galloway is uh, in the Cobb County, West Cobb County Bureau of the AJC's Political Insider uh, blog. Um, uh, By the way, Jim, uh, I I found it. You're right. It was 2008 where Mike Huckabee won the Iowa caucuses. He got 34, basically 35 percent of the vote. Romney finished almost 10 points uh, behind him. So uh, we know how valuable that kind of victory can be, given that Romney went on, of course, to win the nomination. This is in 2012, not 2008. Oh, that's right. He was 2012. 2008, though, Huckabee did win the uh, uh, 
uh, Iowa caucuses. Um, all right, so let's talk now. Jim, uh, it appears that all the momentum right now has moved toward uh, to uh, Sanders as we approach the, um, the caucusing tonight. When you look at the uh, real clear politics averages of all their polling that they look at, he is up by four points um, over uh, uh, Biden. So Sanders is at like 24.2, Biden at 20, uh, Buttigieg at 16, Warren at 16 almost, Klobuchar at eight, and they fall off from there. So many of the people who are close observers of the caucuses are saying they think Bernie Sanders is most likely to emerge as the winner tonight, um, which is going to throw a big scare into the hearts of a lot of uh, regular Democrats. But I would, I would say a couple things. Number one, we're, we're flying blind here because of the De- Des Moines Register poll that was supposed to be out yesterday. It was kind of the final word on where on candidate standings. That was they 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 ditched that. They had a. Uh, a, a uh, kind of a, a screw up in its administration and decided not to go forward with it. Uh, one thing that I'm going to be looking at is 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 how the impeachment uh, uh, trial has impacted uh, the Iowa thoughts. Uh, of course, you've got. I mean, you've had you have all these senators who were locked into the chamber for 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 two weeks there, unable to c- compete, but. You also have had the, 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 the lawyers for President Trump very specifically attack Joe Biden mm-hmm. throughout, throughout the process. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how that plays with Democrats, whether they, whether they rally behind Biden because of the impeachment, uh, because of, of what Trump has done, or they shy away from him. Yeah. You know, Karen, that's a great question. I mean, we also have we have not only do the uh, lawyers for the president in the trial itself uh, attack Biden repeatedly, but then you have Joni Ernst, the Republican senator from Iowa, gleefully telling uh, reporters at a, a stakeout position that she can't wait to see how Iowa reacts to all of the news that the Republican lawyers have put out about Biden and his corrupt practices in Ukraine. She was rebuked pretty strongly by any number of people for doing that. But that doesn't mean it's not effective. Right. And in one week uh, from the Sunday before till this past Sunday, uh, Biden's numbers dropped two points. And he was the one on the ground still in Iowa able to campaign where the senators were actually back in Washington like yep. Sanders and Warren. So it has some effect. And I think now will be whether Sanders turns out today, his supporters. And I think he has a lot of enthusiasm and motiv- motivation from those who felt kind of left out in the 2016 where that close race with Clinton. They want to see him push to the top. So I think he'll have kind of that edge. It will be interesting, I think, to see Buttigieg. And this tonight, will he get those supporters who have said, "Okay, now I'm a little leery of Biden and what's been said about him in the last week or so. And I may have a little bit more confidence in this young man because who can take our party, you know, with a more moderate stance. We're not going so progressive. You know, it's interesting about Buttigieg is late summer, early fall. All the talk was that he had a great ground game organized. He'd really done a good job organizing in precincts. That's kind of faded. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if he gets any uh, boost out of this. We should point out tomorrow that uh, one of Joe Biden's favorite elected officials has been back in Iowa campaigning on his behalf, and that's Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. She's gone all in 
uh, for Joe Biden. Yeah, we've seen her as a surrogate at, at several of the Democratic debates over the last couple of months. Um, but then again, President Trump, one of his favorite sur- surrogates, Ralph Reed from the Faith and Freedom yeah. Coalition, has also been, I think he's in Iowa right yeah. now campaigning on his behalf. Yes. So two Georgians making the rounds. Yeah. Um, all right. So we're going to be watching that. And on tomorrow's show, we'll certainly talk about uh, what the outcome is. Before we leave that, though, Galloway mentioned this Iowa poll, the Des Moines Register, CNN poll. It's always the final poll that uh, comes out on the weekend before the caucuses. And also, it is conducted by one of the single most respected pollsters in the country, a woman whose reputation is sterling. They apparently, in any number of their call sheets, left Pete Buttigieg's name off the question about who you would caucus for and had to throw the whole thing out at the last minute. And so Emerson College, my daughter's alma mater, uh, ends up with the final poll of Iowa. And uh, they, too, uh, I think show Bernie Sanders out front. I don't I frankly don't have it right here in front of me right now. But anyhow, it's it's interesting to see this poll collapse at the last minute. Yeah, And it goes to the point of how important it is that you're pollsters who are actually making the phone calls, asking know exactly where all the names are, how to ask them, and then also to verify again over and over that you have the appropriate questions and everyone's name is there. Uh, uh, There are the Emerson poll, Sanders at 28, Biden at 21, Buttigieg 15, Warren at 14, Klobuchar breaking double digits. I I frankly, uh, (laughs) with my vast knowledge of polls, will be shocked if Bernie Sanders is able to uh, win, Kyle, 28 to 21 percent, to have that big a gap over whoever finishes second. Yeah, I mean, the only other interesting factor there is caucuses, by their very nature, reward organizing and reward enthusiasm. And Sanders, this will be his second go around in an Iowa caucus, whereas other candidates, this is their first time. So it'll be interesting to see how much that experience matters. Meanwhile, Galloway, Michael Bloomberg, who is uh, skipping Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina and heading south, uh, was in Atlanta over the weekend opening his first campaign office here uh, in Midtown, in, in the heart of the gay and lesbian community here. And at his campaign opening, he spoke very specifically to uh, issues of the LGBTQ community that mean a lot to him. Right. There's 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 the LGBTQ uh, uh, issue, and then there's then there's gun rights, yeah. and those are yeah. those are those are prime Metro Atlanta uh, topics. Yeah. And it's it's it's. You know, it's this is one of these terrific wait and see moments uh, because you've, of course, you've got New Hampshire, you've got Iowa, you've got New Hampshire. Then you're going to have South Carolina. Biden's supposed to be doing well. Then you're going to have this monster Super Tuesday. Well, you'll Georgia, Nevada and then Super Tuesday. Right, right, yeah. and then and that the and the Super Tuesday is is just this huge monster that that Georgia won't be a part of this time. Uh, and it's it's going to reward the the candidate who can put the most money into TV ads. Yeah, well, we know who that's going to be. And, he, yeah. and he's committed $300 million of his own money to do it on TV. He makes Kelly Leffler's looking like chump change with $20 million. <laughs> you, know, uh, we, we, you know, Bill, we've, we've talked about how, how Bloomberg ads have, have raised the, 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 the price of, of TV advertising yeah, yeah. across the nation. I'm just wondering, I mean, he, the, the money he's putting, putting out for staff has got to inflate that price tag, yeah, too. I think that's probably right. Um, 
So, uh, you know, we're going to watch. I mean, I think it would be crazy to underestimate what Mike Bloomberg is capable potentially of doing. So that's going to be fascinating. And we won't see that for maybe a month coming up down the road here. Finally, tomorrow, before we finish and we're getting close, you've got to tell us just a little bit about this uh, really kind of extraordinary piece that you filed for the uh, AJC Sunday morning uh, about what's happening at Kings Bay, the nuclear submarine base in South Georgia. Yeah, they have reportedly debuted a new type of nuclear warhead out of this base. And, you know, the Pentagon does not like to confirm these things, you know, what's going out on these submarines. But a very respected independent monitor, the the Federation of American Scientists, said that that this new type of warhead is now has been patrolling the Atlantic on one or two of these subs uh, ever since late last year. And it's actually a smaller warhead than um, what the U.S. used on Hiroshima in 1945, but it still has kicked off a really interesting debate about the war or sorry, the role of nuclear weapons right now in our society. So presumably because it's a much smaller warhead, you've now introduced the idea of using tactical nuclear weapons is what I understand from your story. Exactly. And and a lot of it, you know, the Trump administration requested this about two years ago. And the whole idea is to counter Russia because Russia is apparently looking at what we're calling these tactical nuclear warheads. How much of this is about, you know, as, as one of the people I quoted in this story who defended the Trump administration, you know, deterrence is all about what your enemy thinks, not about what you think. So yeah. how effective is this? And you have people like Sam, Sam Nunn, former senator from Georgia, who are very skeptical about this approach. Yeah. Uh, great story. How could you get any confirmation at all on something that, that, as you say, the Pentagon wants to keep so secret? Well, we do know that Congress put money in the budget to fund it. And so it was really only a matter of time. Okay. But, uh, yeah. It's available. <laughs> I think we can, we probably put a link up to it online to on our social media uh, pages so that people can read it. But congratulations on a, a terrific story. All right. We're just about out of time. Uh, Karen Owen, you'll be up late tonight watching the Iowa caucuses? Yes, I will. William, because you're a night person. That's you correct. You already said that. Yes. <laughs> right. I will be up. I will watch them come in, the results. Kyle Hayes, what are you going to watch for tonight? And I assume you'll be up watching, too. Yeah, I'll be up late watching. I am really interested in where Sanders stands after these results and how much of a backlash that invites from the rest of the party. Yeah, I think that's going to be absolutely what people are going to watch for. Is he does he win tonight convincingly? And I think Jim Galloway, we're also going to be watching if Joe Biden finishes third, fourth place that's going to spell enormous trouble for him because he's not expected to be a star in New Hampshire next week. No, and you you have to wonder uh, what what kind of mention President Trump will give him on Tuesday in the State of the State. Yeah, I think that'll be interesting. Uh, tomorrow we're out of time, but right now I think President Trump might be starting to worry as much about Mike Bloomberg as he is about Joe Biden. $300 million in <laughs> TV ads. <laughs> That's it. We are completely out of time for uh, today's Political Rewind. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, of course, you can follow the news out of the Iowa caucuses at gpbnews.org all evening tonight. And we'll be back at nine o'clock tomorrow morning with a great panel to break down how the caucuses in Iowa went. I'm Bill Nygut. See you tomorrow morning.